Give me some static. You get it. Hit me. Welcome, everybody, to episode 181 of the Metabolist 2 podcast, which features myself, Ben. And I am David. And I think there was a great reaction to our, our return. Certainly on Twitter, everyone was like, hooray, they're back. It was nice to see. It was not, I mean, not everyone, obviously, but there was a, <laughs> a decent decent number of people who I hadn't realized were pleased to have mm-hmm. us on the air. So anyway. We have more than one listener. Um, yeah. <laughs> Right, Fury from the Deep. Yeah, should we get into it? Yeah, I think so. I guess we're going to look at the latest animation release in the Doctor Who missing episode range. It is certainly a range now. There's there's lots of them. And the latest one is Fury from the Deep. Oh, yes. The, the Big Finish Studios animated release. Yeah, a firm memory-based favorite of a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, people who watch this as... Kids in the 1960s assert that this was one of the scariest things they'd ever seen. Seaweed. Seaweed. It's, it's in the uh, genre of the familiar made scary that uh, yes. probably the, most recently Stephen Moffat was the master of. It's a crack in the wall. It's statues, things that you have in your eyes when you wake up. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, all of, all of that stuff. Lumpy blankets. Puddles. <laughs> Puddles. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, everything. Everything is scary. Um, seaweed is scary. And foam. Especially, yeah, and foam. With seaweed and foam. Did you have uh, seaweed anxiety growing up at all? Was no, this a thing no, for you? No. no. Though, I mean, the foam that you get by the sea, um, certainly in the channel, mm-hmm. that can be quite intimidating. Um, it's kind of, you know, whipped up kind of organic material. Um, mm-hmm. I remember being nervous of that because it just looked kind of gross and reminded me of doing the dishes. <laughs> so, Which is something most people are afraid well, of. Well, yeah. Well, I, just, I mean, I, I was, I, at that point, I think I was too young to be doing the dishes, but my mum was doing the dishes. It was like, ooh, it's mm-hmm. stuff that she tips away. So, yeah, but I think I, I, think I, I could relate to the foam aspect. Seaweed, though, mm-hmm. is fine. The seaweed is very benign, according to me. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's, yeah. not, it's, not, yeah. it's not dangerous in any kind of way. Did you, well, hang on, you, you grew up in Minnesota, so seaweed presumably was a, a thrilling foreign <laughs> material. Well, we had lakeweed. Oh, yeah, well, that's horrible stuff. Yeah. With kind of mites and things. Well, it, you'd always get it caught around on boat propellers and stuff like that. Right. And But then growing up later, probably teenagehood, you'd have invasive species, so you'd have to always make sure you clean off seaweed because you didn't want it or lake weed because right. you didn't want to bring it from one lake to another and potentially infest the entire upper midwest minnesota lake system with invasive uh weeds, invasive I, weeds yeah. I mean i think i've said this before on the podcast but we were um we obviously where i was growing up we also we had the sea but we also had like kind of you know, we had lakes and ponds and streams and things right and we would drape ourselves in the weed from um not from lakes but from streams Mm-hmm. And either, well, we would either be generic monsters from Doctor Who or we'd also be villains from Doctor Who who are being attacked by sea, by weed that had come alive, like um, like mm-hmm. the Seeds of Doom. Yeah, crinoids. Crinoids, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Because I was too young, sadly, to even have really been sort of a, hang on, was I alive? Or 68. Sorry. Yes, I was I was too young at that point to, to watch Doctor Who, so was not aware of the seaweed monster. Mm-hmm. 
from Fury of the Deep until, you know, I became a fan and people were, were telling me that that this was the one that the, the one I shouldn't have missed. And sadly, too young to to have seen it. Yeah, and it, and just just reading through the, you know, all the stuff on the on the very I think very comprehensive 3 disc release here is um <laughs> it was broadcast in 68 and by 74 it was no more. Yeah. Not around for very long. No. So it's kind of amazing now that, you know, just six years and then it's okay, see ya. Yeah, another loss. But for, fortunately, have Graham Strong's crystal clear recordings that Mark Ayers did a wonderful job with restoration and that proved to be the foundation in which to animate this Patrick Troughton story. Yeah, so here's, I was going to, I had an initial question that I was going to yeah. ask you. So you are, well, at least you or your family are well-known Troughton fans or Troughton yeah. boosters mm-hmm. my son and I especially exactly and I believe I can't believe that you've not you don't already own the audio CD mm-hmm. etc of this yep. and I'm going to assume you've listened to it at least at least once probably more than <laughs> once probably more than once yes uh, as a as someone who, who who has a longer history with Fury of the Deep possibly than than I have where do you rate it in the kind of Troughton pantheon of the story itself? Yeah, yeah. I really like this story, and okay. it's part of season five, which is uh, the base under siege, the monster season, and it's a refreshing, uh, a fresh take on the base under siege because it's not an alien invasion. It's really a, a bio-horror type story, right? and there's not a central baddie in it. It's humans against nature effectively which is different than say the great intelligence or ice warriors True. or cybermen it's different than anything else in this season and as you know i'm a big fan of deborah watling's portrayal of victoria and right. victoria gets a lot of great dialogue from victor pemberton she does and there's a lot to like in it it's an interesting right. cap to victoria's time from daleks to seaweed creatures it lends itself well to explaining why Victoria has finally had enough, much more than, say, uh, Tegan leaving yeah, at the end of Resurrection. Both Victoria and Jamie are given a lot of... They're, well, A, they're given a lot of stuff to do, and mm-hmm. um, they're, giving, they're also given a lot of space to kind of talk, yeah. uh, which I was, you know, um, was, was interesting, because, of course, this has moved from a kind of an audio drama to a... Mm-hmm. to an animated drama and that that was kind of interesting and actually sort of mm-hmm. suited the style of animation quite well I thought yeah and it was and it was good to see that animated I liked that part of it yeah it moved from an uh BBC Radio 4 drama <laughs> to the slide right yeah with uh, Delgado to uh, Victor Pemberton reusing his script or recycling the ideas as a script into a televised story, um, that being wiped, um, the audio surviving thanks to fans, and then it becoming a narrated soundtrack again, and then a return to uh, animation. So for the longest period of time, when it was just a, a soundtrack release, it was kind of uh, in its original format with uh, Victor Pemberton's script, The Slide. I think a lot of 60s who... Uh, lends itself very well to being audio only where fury falls short in audio format is like with the latter part and i think uh episode six with the helicopter or episode five with the helicopter and stuff that yeah the the purely visual bits don't lend itself at all i think to yeah. the soundtrack narration yeah 
the radio format. Yeah, and I also felt that actually the animation started to fall. Um, uh, what's the word? Uh, it beca- became less useful the more action-packed the story becomes. Which is sad, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and especially since... Because of those kind of behind-the-scenes kind of cine recordings, um, Mm -hmm. I can't remember who did those now, but, you know, those ones, um, the color ones, we actually do know how surprisingly awesome the scene when the seaweed invades the control room. The final battle. Yeah, Yeah, which is actually, as I said, surprisingly awesome. Mm -hmm. It really is kind of frightening, and the seaweed monster is genuinely seems to be otherworldly um right. it's it's really uh it doesn't seem like a man in a suit um mm-hmm. i you know and i'm a you know i'm a jaded middle-aged man <laughs> um it was like oh yeah that really is like a monster of some kind mm-hmm. um and the foam works the foam the kind of disgust of the foam works really well as well so mm-hmm. to have then to, to sort of know what that might have looked like and then see how they handled it on the animation i found that slightly disappointing it's overall too static, and yeah. it begins at the very beginning where the ocean is static, and the TARDIS doesn't even spin down when it lands on the ocean is static. The foam is static. Everything is very static, and I wouldn't say it, it, it's like a papercraft animation where you can't really animate a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like Terry Gilliam, Monty Python, almost well, like you animation. Know, I, I was just about to say the thing it was reminding him of actually was my Weetabix Doctor Who theater from <laughs> 1974, whenever that was. Um, right. The, the kind of the first Weetabix stand-up series. Uh, the second series was a was a board game, but the, the first mm-hmm. series you were supposed to, you know make little plays in front of backgrounds using the stand-up characters. That was the kind of thing that it reminded me of, which from time to time, and certainly, you know, as I said, when 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 two characters are having a bit of a conversation, that kind of works okay. Mm-hmm. Works pretty well. But as soon as you get into the action, you really... Uh, yeah. It's, again, as a, especially since some of the really creepy and impressive action, we actually know what that looks like. Thanks um, to surviving sensor clips, surviving yeah, like I mean, tele- the, 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 the sixteen mil or eight millimeter films on the sets exactly. and that type of stuff. Yeah, I mean the oak and quill kind of cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. Um, is it a cliffhanger? Hmm, can't remember. Um, is even with those sensor clips and even it being black and white sixties TV and even me being a middle aged man, that's pretty disturbing to be honest. Mm-hmm. Really is. Well, talking about oak and quill. What they remind me most of is the James Bond, the Diamonds Are Forever, Mr. Exactly. Mr. Wint and Mr. Kid, which yes, was... Mr. Wint and Kid. That's exactly what they reminded me of. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. And I wonder how much Pemberton took, because the Diamonds Are Forever was a 1956 novel by Ian Fleming. And Fleming was a popular writer, and I wouldn't put it past Pemberton to having read that with Winton Kidd in there right. and then recycle that idea uh, in, in Fury from the Deep. Well, the other thing, I mean, so Diamonds Are Forever, I'm just pulling up on the internet here, it's 1971 mm-hmm. release. It's only three years after Fury of the Deep. It wouldn't, I mean, who's, who's, who's it written by? Wait a second. Um, written by... Um, Richard Maybaum, Tom Mankiewicz, who are the kind of standard writers of James Bond stuff. They're both, they were both based in America, but they were writing stuff and traveling across the Atlantic. It wouldn't be on the, be on the realms of possibility that they watched 
Fury from the Deep. Mm-hmm. And actually, you know, the, the Winton Kid characters, who I think they are in the books, yep. but they could have been taken from watching Fury from the Deep. And, you know, it could have actually been the other way around. Mm-hmm. Well, it could be a combination of a, an interpretation and then a reinterpretation yeah. of that interpretation. Uh, Absolutely, but, yeah. You know, Pemberton isn't still around to ask. Yeah. And they're also Laurel and Hardy type spoofing but it doesn't remind me of laurel and hardy as much as it reminds me of winton kid yeah and i think in one of the special featured documentaries i think they actually reference laurel and hardy don't they um hmm, mm, probably but you are correct the people they should have been referencing is winton kid from um diamonds of forever yeah. but i mean i think i think the point is is that as well done the kind of character the kind of facial animation is Mm -hmm. we know how intimidating those two people were as actors and Mm -hmm. it's then difficult to see to to watch this animation where they are a great deal less intimidating they're made cartoony yeah they are they they're not as a threatening yeah and this is something else actually that this that this animation was really reminding me of and in some ways i wish that the Big Finish, Gary Russell, etc. You know the producers of this um, had mm-hmm. kind of leaned into this a bit, bit more. It was reminding me of Scooby Doo from time to time. You know that very kind of flat. Well, the arms. Yeah, the I mean the, <laughs> the, the the huge long arms was again really bugging me by the end of at least halfway through. I was going like, can you just make the arms a bit shorter? But there's I can't remember which episode. I should have noted it down. There's one bit where the Doctor and Jamie and Victoria they all look out from behind a door and they're kind of stacked mm-hmm. and that well that's totally you know a scooby-doo style joke mm-hmm. so in some ways and this is you know this is also to do with me you know my kind of fantasy which we've talked about before of, of the you know the animation of the space pirates should be done in super marination <laughs> you know why not actually do a doctor animation like it's scooby-doo mm-hmm. um and just lean into that that super flatness and the people hovering in the air when they're running i don't know you know but i mean mm-hmm. stuff that's that's actually you can only do with animation right rather than trying with animation to do stuff that really even in the 1960s you could only do with live actors in a studio well they lean not towards a recreation with this and they don't take it far enough in that direction yeah i think is what you're saying absolutely so i mean there's there's a couple examples i was thinking there i mean one thing that again was bugging me a little bit and I know why they did it and this is not a criticism I think it's more of an observation you know the guards in the animation all have these face plates um whereas when you go <laughs> it was Daft Punk <laughs> yeah exactly in, in the in the you know the tele snaps which are on the damn disc um the guards mm-hmm. don't have face plates and that's right. because obviously you don't want to spend time energy which also equals money producing animated faces for each one of the kind mm-hmm. of no-name guards who are always kind of just kind of hovering, hovering in the background. But yet they do that for the crew. So I don't know where the, was it a cost shifting or was it, I, I, it, it seemed like it was a stylistic decision rather than a cost saving decision. Well, I mean, again, I was, I, that, that's a very good point. But then, I mean, I think if you've got guards who are wearing helmets, it's kind of, okay, they're wearing Daft Punk style helmets. Um, mm-hmm. The crew unless they were wearing kind of, you know, paper bags over their heads or something, it would be hard to think of a kind of an in-story reason why you couldn't see their faces, I guess. Well, that's what they do in James Bond movies is they're all wearing radiation hoods and yeah, stuff like exactly, that. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. The other thing that was kind of bugging me, um, and, I th- and again, this is really an observation, not a criticism, 
it's obviously, you know, the changes they made were the changes that the producers were interested in making, hmm. um, which are not necessarily the changes that I would be interested in making, which is, again, just an observation. And this is my example. So the um, obviously and. I really was thinking about this because of, again, the special features on this DVD are amazing. And Chris Chapman, who I think produces these, you've got to hand it to him. These are really, really great. Um, That's the one where he goes to the like, Red Sands Seafort, right? Yeah, when they go yeah. out to Red Sands and they find the, the crazy helicopter pilot, Mike Smith, you know, who's <laughs> incredible. Choose glass. An incredibly <laughs> awesome bow-tied, you know, 85-year-old or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. He's still clambering up and down with Michael Bryant um, up and down to these decrepit forts. So by all accounts, you know, the stunt flying mm -hmm. that Mike Smith did was pretty amazing. Right. And again, look at the telesnaps. Yes, that does seem to be, that's really pretty impressive. Now, again, when we get that, that sequence where they're in the helicopter, they don't fly the helicopter between the, the oil rig structures. And actually, one of the things they do, they, they reduce the number of structures, Mm -hmm. um, which are kind of two structures with the walkway in between. When in fact, you know, right. you just have to look at the telesnaps or the documentary. There are, I think there's six, or was mm -hmm. it five structures? Five or six, yeah, but, but more than two. <laughs> more than two, exactly. And the, the kind of stunt flying with the, they kind of replace that with these weed, with these kind of giant weed tentacles kind of coming out of the sea, which are fun. And I can, you know, that again leans into more of the kind of Scooby-Doo aspect. Um, right. But they are so big and so unlike anything else that we see in the rest of the animation. It's again, or, or even the story, you know, if the, mm -hmm. if the weed monster is actually as big as crawl, then, right. you know, it should be doing crawl things. Well, it suffers from the same power crawl problem where you have you have this massive crawl, but then you have these little seaweed monster type crawls where they can fit through pipes and stuff. Yeah, so exactly. It, it, the, I, the scaling is off. The scaling is off with that. And then the other piece, and this is just me being a nerd, but so the helicopter that they use mm -hmm. is a dinky little helicopter called a Hughes 269, which is basically kind of Doctor Who's go-to helicopter. It's the same helicopter they use in um, Green Death. and Was uh, it the same one in Enemy? Uh, no, so actually the one in Enemy is a better helicopter. Okay. Um, uh, hang on, I actually looked up. There's a great thing called the, um, uh, the Internet Plane Database, and you can look up what planes were in everything. And mm -hmm. uh, and they have a Doctor Who section, so it's it's in the Green Death, and it's also in wait a second, it's also in the Demons as well. So it's oh, okay. kind of the go-to helicopter, but it's a really crap helicopter. Like it's a two-seater <laughs> kind of crop duster, basically. It's the cheapest right. possible helicopter you can possibly hire. It's animation, okay? Why not change it to a bigger, more exciting? It could still be, you know, period appropriate, like a Western Sea King or Western Wessex or something. Hmm. Um, why not change it to a helicopter that would be more, uh, or change it to a space helicopter, make it all kind of, you know, this is the the ESCO, you know, they've got the, the most advanced. Anyway, so I, I was just thinking like, like, that was something that I would have changed. I would have got, mm -hmm. you know, Martin Garrity or someone to sit down and design like a really awesome looking helicopter and just use that. Because mm -hmm. why just reproduce the kind of crap helicopter that was the only one the BBC could afford? The thing with the helicopter that you know. wasn't so much the design that bothered me was the fact that they added a back seat for it. So, Which it patently doesn't have, if you see what I mean. Right. And so like when, when the doctor and Jamie rescue Victoria, they escape with Victoria on Jamie's lap. Instead, they put Jamie in the back seat. and it It's just, easier to animate. 
to have rather than have someone on someone's It's lap. easier exactly. to animate, but it also part of the thing with making this widescreen is you open it up and you remove the claustrophobia of the story. And by removing yeah. the claustrophobia, uh, I think you lose that under siege mentality. You lose the framing that yep. this is in tight quarters. And, you know, you're talking about directorial choices. Yeah, this was probably BBC America decision Got that we wanted wide on widescreen. But just the way you would compose shots, like when they go and watch the weed in the clear pipe, right. they're all lined up straight across the screen. If you look at the compare this to a telesnap, you know, they would be layered layered because you're, you're in a four by three rather than a 16 by nine type right. space. And I wasn't able to even stomach the color watching because right off the bat, they get the colors on like Troughton's hat wrong. And it, I just, I couldn't suspend disbelief based off what I know of the story. So I switched over to the black, black and white, and white yeah. version right away. So those little things, like you're saying, directorial choices, it's sort of like when you're writing, a, 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 a when you're producing a fantasy or a science fiction story, the things that the audience know to be true, you don't want to change. You want to really ground those yep. things in facts. So then the implausible bits, like the seaweed and stuff, you have an easier time believing. For me, if you get trout... If you make Troughton's hat into a red Santa hat when it's a blue blue hat and he's wearing it throughout the series. Yeah, it's a bobble hat. You know, it's, it's I mean, everyone knows what it, what it looks like. It's not a Santa right. hat. Right. And it takes me out of it. And I found watching this, especially after parts one and two, watching the animation, it was really dragging for me. There wasn't enough visual interest on the screen. I'm very familiar with this, having listened yeah. to the soundtrack more than probably a half dozen, dozen times. Yeah, I'm familiar yeah, with the story. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I usually pause it when I write notes because I, I write notes after each episode or during the episode of things I want to talk about. I found myself enjoying the story more if I just, just listened left, to it. Just listening to it. Right. And I know animation makes it more accessible for more people, but... I found the story more enjoyable the less I watched the animation. And I'm I'm sorry to big finish, but the animation knocks it down a peg for me. Yeah, I you exactly this is another, you know, mental actually actually this was an actual note I made looking at my actual notes. Um the, the widescreen thing, you're exactly right. You know, mm -hmm. I remember I you know, you're looking at them in the control room and why are they all standing so far apart? You know, mm -hmm. they're talking to each other. I mean, I know, you know, I know it's... it's they have to have enough room so they can wave their rubber arms. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I know it's a pandemic and we're supposed to be, you know, staying six, six feet, feet apart. <laughs> but really, you know, they're talking to each other. They should be close. They should be close right. up. You know, mm -hmm. if someone's talking, let's do someone's face talking and then the other person's face talking. Let's have some right. close-ups. Let's right. have some change here. Um, which... It's all directed by Richard Martin, which it wasn't, but it's all that we're <laughs> going to do. We're going to lock off the camera and we're going to get everyone in, in frame and that's all we're going to do. Yeah. There are no close-ups and maybe their models wouldn't support close-ups. I didn't find Troughton's face particularly well animated and which yeah. is one of the strengths of a, of the, of a Troughton character is the face animation. Yep. Um, there have uh, been the, better trans. Um, you know, uh, yeah. I think I was, what was I looking at the other day? I mean, even you go, you rewind all the way back to Invasion. Yeah. Yep. That's actually a better trans, mm -hmm. in my humble opinion. Yep. Yep. For my money, too. 
character design, I'm not sure they nailed the look of Victoria or Jamie very closely. Robson looks like he's one of the miners on Peladon. Uh, the, he did have Peladon hair. I think anyone involved with mineral extraction has to have that hair. <laughs> I mean, it's it's that's a that's a that's a that's a Doctor Who rule. Yep, you don't make the rules. Yep, exactly. You just follow them. <laughs> yep. <laughs> So going back to the design decisions, if you look at the telesnaps of the Harris's apartment, it's a really groovy 60s pad with wild well um, groovy, yeah. wallpaper and stuff. And it's really toned down and sedate compared to what you had in the telesnaps. And I can understand why you want to simplify character designs, but for these static sets... What's I don't what's the it. harm of I, what's the harm of putting the groovy sixties wallpaper? In? It's a pattern. You plaster onto the surface, and then if you need mm-hmm. to angle it, the computer works out. You know, works out mm-hmm. how it, how how the perspective works. I mean, mm-hmm. that's how I understand that 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 happens. So again, I did again, I didn't understand like you why this wasn't a super groovy sixties apartment. I mm-hmm. guess again, you know, my kind of explanation here, and unfortunately, we don't have Gary Russell here or Big Finish to kind of talk us through this is that you know they wanted something that was less 60s -hmm. because you know this isn't really taking place in the 60s it's taking place in kind of doctor Mm. who 60s which okay okay yeah maybe weren't as groovy and you know and again i mean maybe they've also got (laughs) they've also got bbc america you know breathing down their necks and say like don't make it don't make it look too much like the avengers or jason king or something we want it to look contemporary um so they won't scare off fans which again is kind of weird because you know the only fans are going to the be only people this. watching this really are fans and kids i mean the kids are fans um i guess yeah. so. <laughs> the ones who are forced to be the yes. ones who are being indoctrinated exactly the, indi- <laughs> the indoctrinated children um strange decision strange decision mm-hmm. even down to again you know the weed itself which looks really horrible and sort of hairy. That's what kind of gets me about the, yeah. the telesnaps and also the cine images. It's It looks really kind of nasty um, in the kind of, you know, every sense. It's not friendly weed. It's not the friendly seaweed that no, you were you no. playing. It, it looks like it could infect you because of the hairs the with hair. the barbs on them. It's yeah. hairy weed. It looks bad. <laughs> um, but here they kind of, again... Let's give myself an expression. It's probably harder to animate hair than anything else. So, or mm. your single strands of hair. So the the weed is more kind of fish like. It's more like a actual seaweed, and mm. therefore, in some ways, mm-hmm. really kind of less successful. Yeah. And uh, I mean, uh, uh, you know, we'll have to come at some point into saying what we liked about it. But you know, the climactic scene when kind of Robson rises from the foam again, looking at the telly snaps. That is weird and scary and odd and different and very, very disturbing. Mm-hmm. When he kind of rises from the foam in the animation, all he was really rem- reminding me was Ursula <laughs> from, um, you know, from The Little Mermaid. Um, <laughs> really. It's like a head with some tentacles, probably, mm-hmm. and his friends. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. You know, as I said, I just found some of the decisions that they made I think only matter to, you know, someone to whom it matters. So me and the helicopter, mm-hmm. you and the doctor's bobble hat. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. They they, they yeah. can decide what they want to do. And, you know, we both wish they'd made a different decision there. Right. But I mean, I think some of the other pieces are just like, well, why did you decide to do that? 
And just shorten the arms. Make the arms like just a couple of millimeters shorter and then I would have been happy. The animation that they did for Megan Jones, her arms were normal. They but were everyone else, everyone else's arms were, uh, uh, we're getting uh, <laughs> <laughs> giant octopus arms. Um, tentacle arms. Tentacle arms. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, let's go back to the claustrophobia thing as well. I mean, I think what one reads about this original broadcast is there was a kind of, you know, intense kind of claustrophobic feel to it, Mm -hmm. which I think you get because the BBC filming Doctor Who, like the the sets are tiny. um, So, yeah, claustrophobia is easier to do. But again, they do these on the face of it kind of marvellous sort of giant designs for the kind of, you know, the impeller room and things like that. These kind of cathedral like spaces, um, which... A, I think, detract from the claustrophobia aspect, obviously, mm. but mm-hmm. also they're the, they, they make them kind of decrepit and dripping and old looking, which takes away from the fact this is supposed to be, ESCO is supposed to be this kind of super up to date right. 1960s super science thing. It should be gleaming and white if it's huge. It shouldn't be dripping and weird looking. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. This is a great story, and the story mm-hmm. is so good, and I think this speaks to your experience where actually you started just listening to it rather than watching it. This animation succeeds to me despite the animation because the story is so good, mm-hmm. and the acting is so good, and you know it doesn't really flag over, over six episodes at all. Um, there are some really awesome, creepy bits that I mm-hmm. actually felt worked pretty well on the animation when um when maggie harris walks into the sea you mm-hmm. know that's super scary um and mm-hmm. then actually hearing that being talked about by the actress herself actor herself on june murphy yep. june murphy you know she had to, had to walk into the sea and it was freezing mm-hmm. i'm pretty sure it probably it, yeah it, it was it the animation probably did it better. You can see what I mean. Um, mm. Possibly did it better. And I thought that was really, I found that really, I found that really intimidating and weird. Um, so there mm-hmm. are, there were things that worked well, but I think. Well, if you think about it, she shows up at the end with Robson at the sea fort. Yeah. Or on, out in the rig. Yeah, she so walked all the way. So did she walk all the way? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's it's, horrific. It's, it's you know? amazing. Yeah. <laughs> She's totally a sea monster now. I'm talking, right. talking of Ursula the Sea Witch. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, and that's and that's great. I I I love that bit. I thought that bit was good. Um, I think in general, I mean, I think they did they did the foam kind of okay. Mm, to me, I would have done it computerized with actual foam that was shifting and morphing and stuff. It, um, what has me concerned, I guess, is this is the group that's doing the Web of Fear animation for three. Oh. And if the foam is this static, it doesn't work. Foam is foam because it's constantly changing. The size is fluctuating. Bubbles are bursting. But to have two pieces of paper effectively kind of sliding back and forth or up and down, that's not foam. That's yeah. You can get away with that in Punch and Judy puppet shows. It doesn't work for animation. It's really bad. It's cheap looking. I, from time to time with the foam, I rem- remember myself wishing that what they'd done, and I, I'm going to describe it because I don't know what the technical term is, they just kind of cut out the foam outline and then kind of dropped in like a, some film of foam just kind of bubbling and doing its foamy thing, you know, mm. so almost like a kind of CSO effect would have been, you know, it, it would have been Doctor Who-y, certainly, because right. we're all used mm-hmm. to getting used to CSO not not working that well. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, you know, overall, a little bit, I mean, I, I, I'm going to repeat, I think the three-disc 
I have it on DVD because, you know, I'm old school. Mm-hmm. The three-disc DVD set is super comprehensive and basically's got everything you need to enjoy every whatever aspect of this story that you want to enjoy. And, I, and again, mm-hmm. we one appreciates that hugely. Um, the animation itself, to me, is almost... Certainly the colour animation is almost possibly one of the least interesting things on the set. Mm-hmm. Yeah really i think if we want to look at the story itself there are wonderful bits in each each of the six episodes for like episode one the scenes where they would be on location when they're playing on the foam the debut of the sonic screwdriver or the sonic whistle the creation of michael bryant that he now regrets ever ever unleashing (laughs) on the world it shows how inspired it was for the moment but then they give victoria this new one-off skill of using your hairpin to open up doors. If they were truly introducing the sonic screwdriver, that would have been a sonic screwdriver in those two instances that would have unlocked the room that they were, uh, the bunk room that the time team was imprisoned in or to enable access into the Harris's. So it really shows how offhandedly that the sonic screwdriver was introduced into the Doctor Who mythos. Right, right. Um, Like episode two you get really nice domestic scene that we haven't seen before really of supporting cast characters of Maggie and her husband, mm-hmm. Harris. Is he just called Harris throughout? Uh, Frank Harris, it says here on Wikipedia. Fr- okay, so between the Harrises uh, of a couple, and it's something that we haven't seen yet in Doctor Who. Robson comes across really as a jerk, and yeah. you can see him cracking up. Yep. He gets more and more out of control. The scene in episode two, like we had called out, with Oak and Quill attacking Maggie Harris, and just what that implies, that she's in her house, she's lying down, there's... You know, there's there's a there's a hint of a sexual violence there, but instead of a, a, a physical rape, it's with gas and seaweed and control, and it's an extreme violation. It's horrific. Right. I mean, that's just in the first two episodes of things that Pemberton has brought into the story. And yeah, there's a lot of techno babble with impellers and valves and stuff that kind of go whoosh over my head. I really don't care about, but the, <laughs> the character elements are, are nice. And there, it's not just a base under siege. There's more things going on in this than just that. Yeah. 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 No, it's a very, as I said, it doesn't drag at all. Mm-hmm. It's a six parter that, you know, and I like everybody, you know, I've got a, increasingly limited attention span for everything um mm-hmm. you know i was watching this in a super observant way because i was right. criti- critiquing the animation but i was not bored at any point with the, mm-hmm. there, there's a lot of strong characterization and a lot of great acting and a lot of great characters and i found myself from time to time kind of replacing the animated seaweed with you know what i imagined <laughs> the seaweed should have looked like in my own right. head you know as you do But yeah, it's a really good story. And this is Victoria's exit and how they seed throughout this story, especially how early on Victoria is not happy. I mean, she hasn't been happy. Yeah. And she has scenes with the doctor, the doctor saying, why this danger is the spice of life. And Victoria is going, oh, no, it is. Oh, never mind. And and just showing what a type of character she is because when they go back to the TARDIS, which is really nice to see in the middle of part three to do the yeah. lab work, 
it's Victoria, who obviously worked with her father, who was a scientist. She's doing the Bunsen test. And it's Jamie who's relegated to the role as, ooh, I, what's this doctor? What does this mean, doctor, asking the questions? And you see the potential for Victoria. Right. You see what she offers. You see her spunk throughout the story. Using the screaming was a good revision. It originally was supposed to be Jamie's bagpipe playing that was going to be the sound. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Hilarious. But through revisions, yeah. uh, either the director or the script editor, it became Victoria's screaming. And she is the solution to their problem. It's just that she isn't the one that comes up with it. The other thing that really came across strongly to me in this, you know, and I haven't listened to this or obviously haven't watched it because it doesn't exist for, right. for a, a, a long time. Um, you know, my first experience of Fury for the Deep was reading the kind of plot synopsis, synopses in, you know, the Doctor Who program guide and, mm-hmm. you know, the Target making of Doctor Who book, etc. Right. And I can remember being confused by, well, so Victoria just like leaves the TARDIS and just becomes the adopted daughter of like two random people in the story. How does that work? <laughs> Right, um, I'm just being really confused by that, and well, I guess that's how she leaves. But I, I again, I can remember thinking, as a woman, you know, maybe it was just kind of dumb, kind of Leela style. They just had to write her out. Right. What you realize actually is that the the Harrises are super nice, friendly um, people. You know, you you really don't want Maggie Harris to end up being a seaweed monster. Um, no, you really want her to be cured in some kind of way. You mm-hmm. really like Frank Harris. He is, you know, the voice of reason and the kind of, you know, within the whole kind of, well, I guess, you know, the Dutchman is another voice of reason, but he's Dutch. Um, but, you know, right. um, and actually, you say, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. These are two people. There's a caring, um, intelligent mother figure, and then there's a scientist father figure. Right. And yes, you can absolutely see that those are people that Victoria would want to spend mm-hmm. time with and actually would feel to be more akin to the kind of people she wants to live with than the Doctor and Jamie, who, you know, uh, as much as they obviously have affection for each other, you know, they are kind of jerks when they throw her into the into the, into the the foam <laughs> in some ways, yeah. you know. You can, see, you can see her sort of like, okay, yeah. I'd actually much rather live with the Harrises, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and it totally makes sense. It totally makes yeah. sense. Mm-hmm. The Doctor and Jamie are a bit of a, you get a bit of a lad culture. Yeah, between they're laddish, them. they're laddish blokes. And they like, you know, they like it. They like a fight and they like a bit of danger. And, you know, they like teasing her, but, which I think, you know, actually was true on set as well. I yep. think that was sort mm-hmm. of the relationship that, you know, Pat and Fraser had with Wendy Pabry as well. So I think it really fits together nicely. And mm-hmm. in some ways, actually, you know, the animation helped me fully kind of understand that mm-hmm. in a way that actually listening to the audio, which was quite some time ago now, hadn't really done. So, I mean, I'm grateful in that way. Yeah, I think that's the strong point of any animation, because ultimately Doctor Who was a visual medium and you're only getting 50 percent, if that, when you get the surviving audio, because there are long sections that are visual in Doctor Who, especially in Fury, that a linking narration doesn't quite cover. And so even even to have the perfunctory type animation that you have with the helicopters, it does help tie the story together. Yeah, yeah. I just wish they'd animated a better. <laughs> Is this a helicopter? <laughs> it could be anything. It could have been a flying yeah. saucer. So, you know, that was frustrating to me. 
So if Victoria in 1968, do you think she'll eventually bump into the other Victorian from the past, uh, Adam Adamant? Maybe. You never know. Maybe they'll team up and have adventures. There's an idea for you, Big Finish. There you go. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah, you know, uh, we'll see what they... Did the release date for the Web Affair animation? Mm, I think on Amazon Co. UK it's like 2031. So, no, there's not a... Okay. Uh, not a release date because i've already put my existing copy aside for recycling uh, in anticipation of a special edition of a special edition yeah which Mm. is such a shame that episode is still missing and by all accounts now is well i guess if they're animating it's probably gone forever in some sort of way which is yeah phil morris thinks it was uh lifted i think it was probably destroyed yeah i don't know i mean phil morris again just observing him on twitter is increasingly um uh, not know. fun to watch not fun to watch exactly don't want to speak <laughs> ill of someone who's done so much yeah and you know it's it, to me it's, it's such a a key episode mm-hmm. not only in like you know the history of doctor who but again and we, we've we've talked about this before and I'm, no doubt we'll talk about it when we come to review that release again mm-hmm. it is the episode where what you're supposed to think is that the, it's the brigadier it's sorry it's mm-hmm. it's colonel lethbridge stewart who's the agent of the great intelligence Mm-hmm. Um, which is, you know, because we didn't know he was going to pump, become the big deal. Anyway, so it's right, a shame that's right. I'd love to have seen Nick Courtney do that, but never mm-hmm. mind. A random fact, I guess, on this recording or when they were doing rehearsals of episode six, uh, Troughton celebrated his 48th birthday. Really? He's younger, yeah. he was younger than both of us. Yes, as we review this now. Exactly, yeah, yeah. But he had a. a Greatly elongated arms, though. <laughs> arms are longer, longer than longer than both of our arms put together. I think, really. I think so. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, all in all, I think it's a. It's still my love of the story. I think still holds. I really am fond of Victoria. I'm sad to see her go too. Uh, the animation. I think this might be another one like with the power of the Daleks that they might revisit in a special edition in five years' time. Goodness. Have you got the new Power of the Daleks animation? I do. Yeah, I okay. Well, I'm I'm umming and erring about spending the money on that, but uh Well my number one Troughton fan son says true. it is a vast improvement and really? he thinks it is an amazing upgrade. Okay. Well, far be it from me to, 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 to disagree with Elliot on Patrick Trouton issues. So it says it's a lot more watchable and okay. he he would happily watch that animation and he just was not a fan of the first version. Interesting. Okay. Well, I will I will use that to help me make my no doubt final decision which would be just to buy it. <laughs> completist yeah there you go yeah it's nothing we can do really is that but you'll have to hang on to the uh power the original one so you have both so you can oh yeah exactly (laughs) because they're different exactly it's not like a simple special edition where you get everything plus did you you, so just this complete sidebar (laughs) very amused to read the article in this month's dwm about people who are not just trying to collect all of the different editions of the target doctor who books Mm -hmm. but also the different cover styles and errata notices and like wow some people really are completists Mm -hmm. there are some people who are worse than me basically and that's always good to know it reminds me of our friend peter 
who uh, uh, yes. <laughs> collected hardbacks, or or even Jason, who well, has I, the complete... I, can, I can see the hardbacks, but I, I really, you know, there's a slight printings, difference in the, printings in, of paperbacks, yeah, in the in the typography on the on the cover. I don't know. Um, <laughs> just uh, anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I look at how packed my house is full of stuff, and I've lived here for. 20 years or almost coming on 20 years and I keep having new stuff coming in with Blu-ray collections and I right. still have VHS collections and I'm just going, I have too much junk and yeah. I gotta, I gotta start prioritizing. Yeah. I have, I, I have, um, uh, uh, how to explain this in, anyway. Um, I've got someone else staying in my apartment at the moment. Um, and when that person goes, um, I am going <laughs> to, I have now determined I need to have a major clean out. <laughs> It's your wife. It is my wife. But, but then, then people are going Someone to say, like, why is your wife like staying with you infrequently? What the hell is that about? And um, then I'll have to describe my yeah, yeah, right. past life over the past five years, and that will get too complicated. So mm-hmm. it's my wife. Um, and um, <laughs> I mean, she she hasn't said to me I have to clean up, but I, it's clear that, that there's too many things. So I need to get rid of some of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, well. All right. On that note, I think any final words on Fury from the Deep? I I think we covered it pretty pretty comprehensively, to be honest. Yeah, I'm I'm right. happy. I'm happy with uh, I'm happy with our verdict. Okay. Well, thank you for listening to episode 181 of the Metabulous Two podcast. I have been uh, detailing, critiquing foam of the Fury from the Deep animation with Ben, and I have been scared of hairy seaweed with David. Until next time, farewell. Mm-hmm.